Good morning. Today we will discuss Romans 7 through 16. We begin with the age-old struggle between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing. Think about this for a minute. What kind of a person would say things like, I'm carnal, sold under sin. In me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. The good that I would do, I do not. But the evil which I would do not, that I do. O wretched man that I am. Sounds like someone who's a great sinner, doesn't it? These statements were actually made by the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 14 through 19. These statements illustrate the common struggle for all of us between the natural man or woman and their man or woman of God, between the flesh and the inward man. This struggle is a universal human experience. One of the effects of the fall upon our mortal bodies is that we have a tendency, a natural tendency, to sin. Paul teaches the way to be delivered from this natural tendency to sin is through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And that was a quote from Paul. Elder Russell M. Nelson spoke of trials related to our physical bodies. Not an age in life passes without temptation, trial, or torment experienced through our, your physical body. But as you prayerfully develop self-mastery, desires of the flesh may be subdued. And when that has been achieved, you may have the strength to submit to your Heavenly Father, as did Jesus, whom said, not my will, but thine be done. When deepening trials come your way, remember this glorious promise of the Savior. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. From our earliest memories, we can remember learning and singing, I'm a child of God. In Romans 8, 14 through 16, we again are taught that we are children of God. The scriptures speak of us as children of God in more than one sense. In Romans 8, 16, first, every human being is literally a beloved spirit child of Heavenly Father. Second, we are reborn as children of God when we enter into a covenant with him by exercising our faith in Jesus Christ, repenting, being baptized, and receiving the Holy Ghost. So the context of Romans 8.16 make it clear that Paul was speaking of the second covenant, covenantial meaning when he stated, we are the children of God. The children of God that Paul spoke of were those who by virtue of their covenant relationship with Christ were led by the Spirit of God. The companionship of the Holy Ghost is God's assurance that we are his covenant children and that if we are faithful, we will one day be glorified together with Jesus Christ. The blessings Paul discussed in Romans 8, blessings such as being heirs of God, the Spirit's intercession on our behalf, and the full manifestations of God's enduring love 
are enjoyed by God's covenant children, but not necessarily by all of his spirit children. Do you see the difference? Our covenants with God is how we are bound to God and receive his blessing in this life and in the life to come. It isn't enough just to be his child. In Romans 8, 14 through 17, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be it that we suffer with him, that we may also glorify together. Now, maybe you didn't know in, in relationship to the scripture I just read where it, it talked about, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. Maybe you didn't know that Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler of Rome at the time of Christ's birth, was adopted by his predecessor, Julius Caesar. Adoption was common in Rome, in the Roman world, and would have been a familiar concept to Paul's readers. A person who legally adopted someone conferred on that person all the rights and privileges that a natural-born child would have. Therefore, when we receive the spirit of adoption, quote-unquote, through entering the gospel covenant, we become the children of God and joint heirs with Christ. When Paul declared that we must suffer with Christ, he did not mean that we would suffer what the Savior did as part of his atoning sacrifice, but rather that we would go through our own suffering with the Savior, with him. Elder Keith R. Edwards of the Seventy explained that approaching suffering in this way allows us to know the Savior better. He said, we can learn spiritual lessons if we approach suffering, sorrow, or grief with a focus on Christ. Anciently, Paul wrote that our suffering may give us opportunity to know the Savior better. Paul wrote to the Romans, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if it so be that we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified together. He goes on to say, Now lest anyone go looking for hardship and suffering, that is not what is taught. Rather, it is the attitude with which we approach our hardships and trials that allow us to know the Savior better. As we are called upon to endure suffering, sometimes inflicted upon us intentionally or negligently, we are put in a unique position. If we choose, we may be allowed to have a new awareness of the suffering of the Son of God. We can have a greater appreciation for that which he did, and we can feel his spirit succoring us, and we can know that the, sa the Savior in a very real sense. Close quote. Paul teaches that all things work together for our good. If God be for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors through him that love us. 
He lists all the things that cannot separate us from the love of God. And in the end, the only thing that can separate us is sin, willful disobedience, and that is our choice. In Romans 12, Paul teaches us how to live as a sacrificing saint. Under the law of Moses, the sacrifice was an animal sacrifice put on the altar. Under the law of Christ, the sacrifice required is much different. From Elder Neil A. Maxwell, quote, So it is that real personal sacrifice never was placing an animal on the altar. Instead, it is a willingness to put the animal in us upon the altar and let it be consumed. Such is the sacrifice unto the Lord of a broken heart and a contrite spirit a prerequisite to taking up the cross while giving away all our sins in order to know God. For the denial of sin precedes the full acceptance of him. Great talk by Elder Maxwell. It's called Deny Yourselves of All Ungodliness, April 1995 conference. So some of the things listed in Romans 12, 3 through 21 to be a sacrificing saint include Abhor evil and cling to good. Be kind, love one another. Be fervent in serving God. Be hopeful, be patient in trials. Be prayerful, look to the need of others. Bless your enemies, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be humble, be honest, live peacefully with others. Overcome evil with good, use your gifts. You know, that's, there's a lot of things to think about there, and maybe this week it would be a good thing to do to pick one of those things and concentrate in improving in that particular area. So let's conclude today with one more fun little maybe you didn't know. In Romans 12:13, it states, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. What does it mean to be given to hospitality? In the South, there's a tradition of the pineapple. I did a Google search and found in the Southern US states, pineapples are seen everywhere. The iconic pineapple is represented in popular culture, art, and even in architecture. From home decor, such as brass door knockers, beds, wallpaper, welcome mats to business cards, the pineapple has been a symbol of hospitality since the days of the early explorers to the West Indies and Americas to the colonies. Now, why would that be? Well, way back in the day, pineapples were very expensive, so much so that a host might not be able to afford one, so they would rent one to have on the table when an honored guest arrived. Now, nobody ate the pineapple. It was just the symbol. It represented the willingness to sacrifice to extend hospitality or to take someone in and provide needs such as food and drink to them. This can be thought of as the hospitality code. The concept is illustrated through scripture and long back to Old Testament times. Remember Abraham welcoming the stranger into his tent and offering him food and drink? In Exodus 23, 9, it says, also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. 
And, you know, there's the scripture in the New Testament, you are no longer strangers, but fellow members with the saints. In Matthew 25, 35, for I was hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Who do we know? Maybe at church, at school, at work, who's just kind of on the fringe of things, needs some friendship, needs some kindness. That's the hospitality code. In Hebrews 13:2, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The hospitality code. Now let's let's be clear, the basic principle is not to randomly become involved with strangers that might put us at a safety risk, but to extend the hand of friendship to those within our circles that need kindness and caring. Put a pineapple in your pocket. Maybe it's a picture, maybe it's a keychain, just some kind of a pineapple symbol to remind you of the hospitality code. So the challenge questions. High school, what is the universal struggle all mortals are involved with? Middle school, what are two ways we are a child of God? Elementary school, what is the hospitality code? And kindergarten, what is one way we are a child of God? So have a great week, everybody, and let's double our efforts to follow the Savior's invitation to come follow me.